Mark fourteen fifty three through 65. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Thanks be to God for his holy word. The text in front of us today contains a host of ironies. The most obvious irony is that the guilty is bringing the innocent to trial. The creator is tried by his creatures. Evil men seek to judge the righteous judge of the world. Not only irony, but also this is one of the most corrupt trials to ever occur. We've all heard of conspiracies around fixed trials where there was a miscarriage of justice. Well, this is the greatest miscarriage of justice that the world has ever witnessed. But also, we must confess that this was all part of God's redemptive plan out of love for his people. The same people who have abandoned him time and time again. And this is where we pick up in this narrative. Jesus was just in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was praying in agony and deeply sorrowful over the cup that he was about to drink. That is the cup of God's wrath. He was in the Garden as the second Adam who would undo all that resulted from the first Adam's failure. And he would do what Adam failed to do By perfectly submitting and obeying his father. We find ourselves right after Jesus is betrayed by Judas. And arrested by some Roman soldiers and officers. Of the chief priests, elders and scribes. All of his disciples abandon him. And he is now all alone. Jesus is brought to the high priest Caiaphas. Who was one of the most powerful Jews in the land. The chief priests, the elders and scribes, or what we call the Sanhedrin, came together and gathered in Caiaphas' courtyard. 
These men make up the highest Jewish court. And now Jesus faces a fixed trial at their hands. We can say that all odds are against him. Now look at who else is following Jesus. It says Peter. But at this point he follows at a distance. The bold and confident Peter is nowhere to be found as he follows at a safe distance and gets comfortable as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. The same disciple who told Jesus that he would die with him. That has changed very quickly and now he looks on at this farce of a trial. Now we don't want to put too much emphasis on what Peter does and what he failed to do here. Because in a sense, it wasn't his time to suffer yet. This trial that was about to take place was unique. And Jesus was the only one who could go through it and had to go through it alone. The disciples will eventually face similar persecution for proclaiming Christ, but it won't be the same in substance. In fact, in their proclamation, they will proclaim what Jesus goes through here. Here he stands trial and faces the prosecution alone with no defense. And what we will discover in this trial is that there were false witnesses, a true witness, then the verdict, and what that verdict means for us. First, there were false witnesses. The evidence that this trial was rigged and corrupt comes out in many ways. The Sanhedrin was known to have the strictest rules to prevent injustice in carrying out convictions. And after they convicted someone, especially of a capital crime, they would meet again the next day to confirm their decision in order to prevent quick or rash convictions. So it wasn't an easy process. But when it came to Jesus, these laws went out the window. What we see in our text is nothing more than a witch hunt, an evidence of how deep and dark sin can reside in the hearts of men, and how it is from this dark place that they rejected Jesus and seek in all their power a way to kill him. Notice some of the evidence that makes this an illegal and illegitimate trial. First, the location. They were at Caiaphas' home in the courtyard rather than the Hall of Hewn Stone, which is located at the north wall of the temple where these sorts of trials and disputes would normally take place. Secondly, it was taking place at night, which was illegal according to Jewish law. They wanted to keep it secret from the people of Jerusalem so there wouldn't be an uproar during the Passover. And that leads to the third point. It was illegal to hold a trial on a feast day like Passover or on the eve of the Sabbath or on the Sabbath itself. And it is Thursday evening right after the Passover meal. Fourthly and most evidently, They had the verdict already decided before the trial. Remember back in verse 1 of this chapter where it says that they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And now it says 
They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were trying to come up with something, anything to hold against him, but they couldn't find anything to accuse him of. And fifthly, there were false witnesses. The Greek word for witness shares the same root word for martyr. Isn't that ironic? A martyr dies as a witness who gives testimony about Jesus Christ. Contrast this type of witness with what's going on here. False witnesses will come forward with false testimonies against him. But their testimony did not agree. So they broke the ninth commandment in bearing false witness. And according to Jewish law, in order to convict someone of a crime punishable by death, you must have at least two witnesses whose testimonies agree. An example of one of the false testimonies is given to us as some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now the reason why this is a false testimony is because Jesus never said, I will destroy this temple. Right? In the context of John chapter 2, when he mentioned destroy this temple, he was implying that they would destroy this temple, speaking of the temple of his body. So he was not only foretelling the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but also his own bodily death and resurrection. But they were trying to accuse him of suggesting that he was planning to lead an armed rebellion and destroy the temple building by means of human strength. They were trying to falsely accuse him of treason. And anytime someone spoke against the temple, it was equivalent to speaking against the entire people of Jerusalem. So this may have led many to turn against Jesus. But this accusation couldn't stick because even about this, their testimony did not agree. They had nothing to charge him with and they weren't concerned with the truth. They had already decided this was all out of malice and hatred for Jesus. And another irony is, is that these were the religious leaders of Jerusalem. They were entrusted with the truth of God and yet they bore false witness. Which means they lied against the truth himself. The high priest Caiaphas who came in the lineage of Levi was responsible for offering sacrifices and intercede on behalf of his people. The elders were responsible to judge matters according to the truth. And the scribes were experts in the law of God. Yet that day they trampled on that law and conspired to murder, breaking the sixth commandment as well as the ninth. And they knew the prophecies of the Messiah, yet they couldn't see him standing right in front of them. Beloved, this is where sin leads. This is where sin leads. This is what we see in this dark world that denies and rejects Jesus Christ. The assault on Christ in this world and the assault on his church is purposeful and diabolical and oftentimes without reason. Notice it. Notice it. 
Look around you. Oftentimes you're like, why are they persecuting the church? There's no explanation whatsoever. There's no justification. But this is where sin leads. This is where the darkness of men's hearts eventually lead. But even in the midst of this dark and evil trial there, the light of the world stands among them, who willingly gave himself up to suffer for our sake. The guilty was putting the innocent on trial, and he was willing to die for the same people who would put him on the cross. In our sin, in our darkness, we were all represented there by these religious leaders. And although we have false witnesses, secondly, there stands among them the one who is called the true and faithful witness. The other irony of this is that one day the one whom they believe they are judging will judge them and bear witness against them unless they turn to him and be forgiven. We see him as the true witness and the true judge of the world in his response to Caiaphas's question. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? What was his response? Nothing. Nothing. But he remained silent and made no answer. This should have reminded them of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Not only that, but he was also bearing witness against them. He didn't have to give a response and answer them. Jesus is not just being passive here. Yes, he willingly gave himself up and he knows he has to go through this. But also in this trial, he didn't have to give a response to this question because they never presented a genuine charge against him. He said nothing because the answer was Nothing. As they say, that could never hold up in court. He was being truthful in his response. And this doesn't mean he stays silent. In fact, in John, he records that Jesus responds to Anas, Caiaphas' father, after he questioned his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? See, Jesus wasn't against defending ourselves, as some suggest. He wasn't teaching us to be passive-aggressive. But the real question that is behind everything in the gospel is the next question that Caiaphas asks him. Yes, he spoke openly to the world and said nothing in secret. If you were a Jew and you knew the scriptures, the dots should have connected in your mind. But there was a veil over their eyes. Now he'll make it plain to them. His identity would now become public knowledge rather than just between him and his disciples. Caiaphas asked him, 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Notice another irony here. He says, Son of the Blessed, instead of Son of God, because he wants to avoid using the divine name of God. He didn't want to break the third commandment by taking the Lord's name in vain while he sat back and allowed the breaking of the ninth commandment as his colleagues bore false witness against Jesus and he was seeking to break the sixth commandment, plotting to kill Jesus. What hypocrisy. But this is what sin does as it blinds us to the truth of ourselves. But what was Jesus' response to this question? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Mark records a unique response which calls for our attention. Jesus responds, I am. Caiaphas didn't use the divine name of God, but Jesus uses the divine name of God for himself. I am. He not only confesses with his mouth that he is the Christ, but that he is also the divine Son of God. He is their God. He has been revealing this to his disciples throughout his entire ministry with all of his I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And one of the most important statements he makes is, for unless you believe that I am he, that is, that I am from above, that I am your God and Savior, you will die in your sins. See, it is not enough to be a moral or good person. It is not enough to believe that Jesus was a good prophet. You must believe that he is the I am. Also, he continues, And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He stood there as the suffering servant of Isaiah, confessing with his mouth that he is the Christ who is the Son of God. Now he confesses to be the Son of Man of Daniel 7 and the Lord who sits at the right hand of God of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, to sit at the right hand of God is not about having two thrones side by side, right? God in one and Jesus on the other. No, that's not what it means. It is speaking about having equal power and glory with God. To get a better understanding of what would have or should have gone through the mind of the high priest, listen to what Daniel saw in his night vision. Behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So imagine the face of the high priest at this point. The one that they have put on trial just claimed to be the one who will one day sit on the throne and judge them all. He just revealed to them that he has ultimate authority over them. And this presentation of the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days occurs before the throne of God as Jesus would stand as a lamb, 
as though it had been slain. But only after he goes through his sufferings for the sake of his people. So thirdly, what would be the charge? And what would be the verdict? To them, this would have sounded ridiculous. The one that they were supposed to worship, the one who is to possess all power in heaven and on earth, is standing before them powerless. And so the high priest tore his garments as a sign of grief and rage and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now the only obstacle here for them was that under Roman authority, they did not have the power to condemn someone to death. So later they will seek to charge him with treason against Caesar to put him to death. But for the Jews, they charge him of being guilty of blasphemy. Now this is a false accusation because they were seeking whatever charge that would stick to have him killed. And what he said wasn't blasphemy. It was the truth. He was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. But they couldn't accept this. So they began to spit on him. See, spitting is not like today. It's not just a sign of disrespect. But it would render him unclean according to the law. It was another sign that he had been cut off from the covenant people of God. This is why they would later bring him outside the walls of Jerusalem to have him crucified with the Gentiles and pagans. And they began to cover his face or blindfold him and strike him, mocking him, treating him as a false prophet, saying to him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And the guards received him with blows. And as in Luke it says, And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The blasphemers charged our God with blasphemy. This is sin in all of its outworking, isn't it? This is the fruit of darkness. This is what every man in his sin would be led to do to God if he had the chance. It was a display of pure hatred for God and His Son. This is what we see in the world. How dare you, God, speak against the cause of humanity? They will forever charge God with blasphemy for speaking out against sin. But beloved, let us not forget the good news and how the light shines in this dark moment. Because out of the depths of God's love, he sent Jesus, and Jesus willingly gave himself up for this suffering. Again, it reminds me of the suffering servant who says, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Why? So that we would never go through what he has gone through here. He has stood trial so that you would never stand in the tribunal of God and be rendered guilty. He stood condemned so that you would never stand condemned in the judgment of God 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been delivered from the condemning power of the law. By his suffering, he will make many children of God, as we find in Isaiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because even though we weren't there to spit on him or blaspheme him, we stand just as guilty as if we were there. We are the guilty ones. But he took on the suffering as the innocent one. And the only way we can be delivered is if we look to him by faith. On that day, the innocent was made guilty so that the guilty would be made innocent. Now we no longer need to fear the judgment of God even when we stand trial and are condemned by this world. Because a servant is not greater than his master as he told his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They will make things up about you. They will slander you and bring you up on false charges. Why? Notice, not just because you're a moral person, I'm afraid that with everything going on in the world and in our society, many Christians are beginning to resort to a form of moralism. Moralism is morals disconnected from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will his disciples be persecuted because of godliness and righteousness? Yes. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But is that all he says? No. Where does he identify the godly life? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Meaning, outside of Christ Jesus, there is no godly life. There is an illusion of a godly life, but there is none. It is not enough to be a good and moral person. It is not enough to grow up in a Christian culture. It is not enough to be associated with the morals of Christianity or to possess the same worldview as Christians. There are those out there who claim similar morals and worldview, yet they still deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, as he confesses here. Think of Judaism, for instance. Remember the charge. They didn't put him on trial just for his moral teachings. They didn't like that either. But the charge was blasphemy. It was blasphemy. Because Jesus said, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I am equal with the Father in power and glory. And the Christian is the one who repeats, Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and He is equal with the Father in power and glory. So to them, it was false teaching or heresy. It was doctrinal. I know many people who are bothered by doctrine. But as J. Gresson Machen once said, Christianity is not just a lifestyle, but it is also a doctrine. Yes, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
But right after that, he expounds his teaching. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Not on your account. Not for any old cause, but for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the Christian is not just a moral person, but a person that has been sealed with the name of Jesus Christ and is hated for Christ's sake. If you are a Christian, you have been taken out of the world, out of your sins, and placed in Christ, and now you are accounted as righteous and holy, even at times when you are not. And if you are united to him, you will also suffer for his sake. Just as when God sees you, he sees his beloved son. When the world who hates Jesus sees you, they see Jesus Christ and they hate you. This is something we must come to grips with. Because his sacrifice not only sealed our salvation, but it was also an example for us, as Peter says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And as Paul says, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Beloved, I believe often we resist this pattern of suffering, not because we want to vindicate Christ's name, but because we want to clear our own name. We want to stand up against injustice so that we can vindicate ourselves or better avenge ourselves rather than waiting for the Lord to vindicate us. See, Christ would later be vindicated when he rose from the dead. The false verdict and charge would be reversed and he will be declared the son of God as Paul says in Romans 1. And that is the pattern of life for us, beloved. After suffering for a little while, there will be glory. And one day, we too will be vindicated and cleared of all charges, both the true and the false ones. Now, I'm not saying that we are to seek suffering and persecution and that we are never to defend ourselves in certain circumstances. But when suffering and persecution comes, are we willing to accept it for the sake of Christ? Are we willing to accept the persecution for the sake of Christ's glory? Do we see what it is all about? Our suffering does not earn heaven the way Jesus' suffering earned heaven for us, but it is the way of the cross that Christ has called us to. And to the world we will look like fools for Christ as their minds have been darkened by sin. As we look at the evil we find in this text, we should mourn over sin, our own and that of the world, but we should always remember and rejoice that Christ willingly suffered on our behalf. He took the spitting and the blows and the cross for us. And as dark and evil as it was, it is our only hope. Amen.